Hello and welcome to IEEE Soft Robotics Podcast. In this podcast, we are going to interview researchers from Pulse Academia and Industry about their work, thoughts, spectrum, and more beyond that. This is Marwa Edwini, and I hope you will find this podcast useful. If you would like to connect with us, simply send us, and we will be happy to hear from you. And here is my interview. Thanks. Hello and welcome to IEEE Soft Robotics Podcast. Uh, could you please introduce yourself? Hi, uh, I'm Marwa. I'm Jonathan Rossiter from the University of Bristol and Bristol Robotics Laboratory. Thanks so much for joining us. Um, so I would like to go firstly, what is the first robot you built, if you remember, and what is the feeling you had at this time? I think the first robot that I actually built from scratch, thinking that it would be a robot, was when I was in Japan working in the Institute of Physical and Chemical Sciences, Riken. And I went there as a researcher in uh, computational systems and artificial intelligence. And I saw people around me making robots and doing stuff with robots. Mm. So I thought, oh, I could do that. And with these research grants, there was flexibility to do whatever you liked. So I started to build a robot which had wheels it's like a little little platform that moved around, had wheels. But the thing is, I, n- I never finished it. And I never finished it because I got involved with soft robots. And that just meant that conventional robots with wheels and motors and things, yeah, they, they kind of had less interest to me then. So I suppose the first robot that I built, I didn't build in the end. Mm, great. So I would like to go back for childhood. Do you remember anything that inspired you to work in this field? Do you have any memories about that in childhood? Yeah, that's a really good question because I think what happens in our childhood has a big impact on where we want to go and what we want to do as an adult. So when I was a child, uh, I used to sit around reading a lot of encyclopedias, reading about technology, and I would teach myself how a car would work or how a rocket engine would work or how an electric motor would work. And that's, that's really exciting because you learn about the, you know, the internal parts, how, how you can decompose something and maybe how you can then compose something to make something sophisticated. And at that time, I thought that the most interesting thing that one could possibly be would be an inventor, somebody who invents new things. Because I saw all this cool stuff around in the books and I thought, yeah, I can't like to make the next type of car or the next type of engine or the next type of rocket. You know, at that time, rockets were still very exciting and uh, traveling to the planets was still, you know, a, a thing that was on the near horizon. It shifted a little bit and it's coming back now. So I felt like that inventing was a thing. If you were an inventor, you could take an idea in your head and turn it into reality. And that, as a young person, I thought was really attractive. Mm. You weren't restricted by the world around you because you would come up with a cool idea and make it, and then you've changed the world around you. And I still think being an inventor is cool. And I, I think that those of us who are working in this area are inventors. Right? We're, I think we're leading the next generation of robotics. Therefore, we're inventing cool things which will have an impact and change our lives and change the environment around us. So I think... That's where my interest in science, technology, and ultimately soft robots comes comes from. You know, mm-hmm. Can you be an inventor? Can you invent something new? That's very interesting. So I'm curious to ask you uh, how you define a robot first. How you define a robot from your experience? 
Yeah, I think uh, you'll find when you, you talk to me, and we might discover it later in the interview, that I'm not very excited by definitions. Mm -hmm. So a, a definition is great if you have a doubt about something and you feel that the definition is important. So, you know, the definition of whether somebody is alive or dead when they have had an accident is really important so that you can decide how you want to treat them or whether you switch off a life support system or something like that. But the definition of what a robot is, I'm not too worried about it. Robots, I think, are things that have some kind of autonomy and a physical body to them. I think the physical body is quite important. Otherwise, it starts being a piece of software. So if it has some autonomy and a, and a body, well, I suppose organisms are a little bit like robots, right? So a human is a little bit like a robot because it has autonomy and it has a body. And for some outreach we did a few years ago, uh, the team that were engaged in the outreach and talking to school children and so on, we, we made these T-shirts that had on the back of them, I am a robot in big writing. Because, you know, I am a robot kind of. Actually, those ones said I'm a soft robot, which was even more appropriate because humans are soft robots. So I think the definition of a robot isn't so interesting. But what is interesting is when you see something and then you think that's got robotic behavior. So it kind of flips the definition around. And we do that a lot with some other concepts like uh, complexity is another example. It's very difficult to define complexity. But when you see a system that's complex, like a whole load of ants in their ants' nests, or uh, some other system like birds flocking, that's a complicated system. You can define it as, as a complicated system, but it's very difficult to define complexity. I, I'm happy with that in robots as well. Something that's autonomous and something that, that moves around is good, but I wouldn't want a deeper definition than that because it might limit what you're thinking about. And the one thing I don't want to do is to limit our imagination and how we're thinking. Just imagine if we say a robot has to do this and do this and do that. Mm. And then you make something that doesn't do that, but still does something really cool and interesting. I wouldn't want someone to turn around and say, well, you know, you, you haven't made a robot there because I think it probably is a robot. That's interesting. So I'm curious now to ask you, not definition, but soft robotics, because now you say something interesting. We don't want to limit ourselves. So if you would like to express soft robotics maybe from your experience and in the coming years how you would see it like from your eyes and also that's maybe first question and second question what do you think the most important question that maybe the community is not focusing on right now and we have to focus on oh, you got two questions in there that's tough you're asking two questions at once is really it's, it's, it's tough okay so coming back to what a what a soft robot is um, I take a lot of inspiration from nature, and a lot of us do, because soft organisms are, are out there a lot. And we look at the parts of the organisms that are attractive, the materials, for example. And we say, that's really, really interesting, and we can try to copy that, replicate that. Or we have a look at their behaviors, and we think, well, they can behave with a soft body, uh, computing and control, and that's, that's really interesting. But I might step back a bit and say, those organisms, organisms in the real world, are really like robots. So our robots should really be like organisms. And an organism is, is an entity that is self-sufficient. It's got control and it's got a body and it's got energy. And those things make the organism. And I think then a soft robot really has to have all of those things. And I draw the analogy between an organism and a soft robot. And I think that 
the conventional robots have got they've got computers, whereas organisms and soft robots really are going to have are going to have brains. And a, a conventional robot has got a rigid body. It's got very fixed links and, and joints. And biological organisms have a much more compliant body, you know, much more uniform, morphous body. And so does a soft robot, I think. And then finally, the last part of a, of a soft robot is the energy. So in a conventional robot, it's probably some batteries or it's a connector to the wall so that we get electricity from the wall or it's a solar panel or something like that. And in organisms, they take energy from the environment, sometimes from light, but also through organic materials. So they might have a stomach. And that's really where I think that kind of the next generation of soft robots are. They're going to be organisms that have got brains and soft bodies and like stomach type materials. They kind of metabolize things from the environment. Um, so I think that way of thinking about soft robots means that you can be really adventurous uh, in, in that field. Now, in terms of the challenges, actually, the challenges for soft robots cover all three of those areas, right? Mm. We need to have the artificial brain in the soft bodies, in the soft robots. And that's something we're just really scratching the surface of in the last few years. And then we need to have the body. And the body has to do what other organisms do. So it needs to move. It needs to have actuation, movement, and muscles. It needs to have sensing, and it needs to have proprioception and those kind of qualities of, of soft robots, which of course we know is very difficult in soft robots. And then finally, we need to have more research in the energy side of things. And I'm particularly interested in the energy because at the moment, we, we don't have very good energy supplies for our soft robots. Sure, we've got batteries, but converting that energy into useful actuation is a challenge. And so that turns into the problem of transduction how can you take useful energy from some store, like a battery or some chemical store, and turn that into useful actuation and movement and control signals for that robot organism? So there are actually quite a lot of challenges in there. I mean, in the body side of things, there are so many challenges with regard to the materials. Biological organisms, they don't live forever, and when they die, they degrade. But most of our robots, they don't degrade. And that's terrible if you put them into the environment. So there are more challenges in that area as well. So I think in each one of those areas, the brain, the body and the stomach, there's a, there's a lot of work to be done. Mm -hmm. That's very interesting. And I'm curious about the energy because I think in one of the episodes we have something about that energy is a bottleneck for autonomous software robotics. I don't know if you agree about that. Uh, do you think this is a bottleneck for having autonomous software robotics? Yeah, I think energy and the transduction. Yes, so uh, the energy, because we need to have high um, energy density storage, but we have that, don't we, in, in biological organisms. So if I eat a sandwich, I've got a lot of energy in there, and that's enough energy to get me to walk up a half a mountain. You know, that's, a, that's an awful lot of energy in a sandwich or in a bowl of rice or something like that. So the energy stores are out there, and chemical energy stores are pretty efficient and very dense. But we haven't got a mechanism, a very effective mechanism to turn that kind of energy source into the kind of energy that we need. And the energy that we need, of course, in a robot that moves is mechanical energy. So that conversion of chemical energy in, into mechanical energy, this kind of tr transduction process as we're talking about, mm. is really an area where we need to do more work. So those of us who work in artificial muscles, for example, 
are interested in turning some kind of stored energy, electrical energy or something like that, into mechanical energy. And there is, I think, a bottleneck there. And the bottleneck there is because of the mechanisms that are being used, maybe we're not using the appropriate physical mechanisms, as in we go back to fundamental physics to, mm. to try to investigate that, or we're using the wrong kind of materials that don't enable us to do that effectively. So I think that is a challenge. Yeah, you're right. Energy is a big thing. It is a bottleneck. But perhaps it's not the energy storage. It's the transduction, that process of turning one energy form into another. Mm -hmm. yeah. So if I ask you, what are the most misconceptions about soft robotics you have witnessed? And something maybe concerning to you when you see soft robotics research currently? Yeah, I think there's an interesting phrase that people often use, and that's that soft robots are intrinsically safe. I hear that a lot. They say, yeah, I've got this uh, soft robot here. So um, there's an elderly person, person who's older, and I want to give them some assistance to help them to move around. Mm. So, of course, they're delicate because they're older. And so I'm going to make a soft robot that's going to help them to move around. And then they say, well, soft robots are good for that because they're intrinsically safe. They're soft. But... In that kind of environment, the, the robot, no matter what it is, is going to have to deliver substantial forces to give somebody that extra boost to help them to move around. And I think people forget that soft robots can exert very strong forces. It's how we design them, right? And what energies we put in there and what muscles we put in there. Mm. So they can deliver some really, really strong uh, forces and a lot of energy they can expend. And that means that they're not necessarily safe. Of course, the flip side of that is that because we can make soft robots that are strong, we can use them in wider applications. You know, we might put them in a factory to assist with a factory worker and get the soft robot to help lift the heavy thing while the factory worker just kind of points or just helps the robot to, to move the object around. So I think that misconception that soft robots are intrinsically safe and therefore weak, I think, is, is a little bit it's a little bit dangerous and I think people should stop using that if possible because we can make a conventional robot safe by having very sophisticated controllers or putting compliance in there mm -hmm. so it doesn't necessarily mean that, that soft robots win in that in that way but it also means that they don't lose they don't lose in the power struggle mm -hmm. interesting point and there is something also that you think maybe a misconception uh, rather than intrinsically safe you think yeah, I, I think that we have to be, what that means is also when we develop our soft robots, we have to be careful of this. We can't rely on the fact that the soft materials seem soft and therefore the robot can't do anything bad. It can't be put into a situation where something could hurt something else or it could cause damage. Because there are many ways in which robots can cause damage, either because of the, the decomposition of the materials or, or leaking some chemical or imposing some force when, when you don't want it to be. So this notion that soft robots are always safe, I think, is, is, is a misconception. Mm -hmm. So I would like to ask you what you are currently focused on in, in your research of soft robotics, because you have a lot of uh, great interest about artificial muscles and material design. So if you can tell us more about what you're currently focused on or something maybe challenging for you in the work. Yeah, the, the, the focus, um, well, so in Bristol, we do a lot of work across the spectrum of soft robots. And I'm a great believer that if you're going to work in this area, you should have an understanding and an appreciation of the whole spectrum mm. from the very fundamental materials behavior 
through to taking those materials and turning them into mechanisms and structures, and then taking those structures and putting them together to make actual machines and devices for application. So if you understand that and you work across that spectrum, you've got the ability to see how you can bring things together from different domains. So instead of working just in the materials end um, and then focusing on that, actually, if you join the materials to the smart structures, like metamaterials, for example, then you can work at the interface between the two and take the best bit of one and then join it to the best bit of the other. And then when you bring in things like energy systems, we were talking about before, and transduction, and then how you might then use those for a practical robot, then your understanding of the whole system from materials all the way up to machines helps you to generate a more more targeted and, and better uh, kind of better robot. So I'm interested in all of those levels from the materials through the energy through to the machines. And I think the one thing in Bristol we're, we're focusing a lot on at the moment is this notion that a robot is more than a robot. A robot is this thing which is an organism. And that helps us to think how we can put uh, embedded computation into the system because we know that the materials have got some very interesting nonlinear behaviors. If you put those together with structures, you can exploit those nonlinear behaviors in nonlinear structures to get embedded control systems, for example. Mm -hmm. And you can only do that if you appreciate both parts of the system. And then that helps you to have a system which is a little bit more like a, an organism which exploits nonlinearities and, mm -hmm. and stable, uh, efficient locomotion and so on. So it's a big picture that I'm talking about, but it's an exciting picture to work. So a lot of our stuff is on the computation, a lot, which is the brain part of our organism. Um, others are on the energy side and the transduction, which is the stomach side. And then uh, even more is on the body, which is the transduction to get movement, which is the artificial muscles. Mm -hmm. So I think those are really cool areas. And one area where we really haven't talked about much is the area of life cycle of the robots. So we're particularly interested in what happens when a, when, when a robot is born, well, I, I guess we can make robots in a lab so they're born in that way. Mm. But then what happens when they've come to the end of their lives? So when a robot comes to the end of its life at the moment, we have to take it out of its environment and we have to manually recycle it. We have to take all the dangerous bits out and then we have to make it safe. But in the real world, in, in the natural world, organisms die and then they fall to the bottom of the sea or they uh, fall on the land and then they degrade to nothing. So what that means is that in the world, there's a relatively constant number of organisms because organisms are made and then they degrade. So we really should be doing that with robots too. And learning how we can make robots which are very effective um, and then they do what we want them to do, but they also at the end of their lives, they degrade to nothing and then they disappear. That means that we can have a completely different approach to robots and the way we release robots into the environment, especially soft robots. So instead of having a hundred or a thousand robots that are released into the environment, for example, to clean up some oil pollution in the sea, we could release a million or a billion or, you know, a number that we would never have thought possible in the past. We can throw them out there. They can feed on the pollution. They can reduce the pollution. And then at the end of their lives, after a week or two, they can degrade to nothing. They can be eaten by microbes in the environment. Mm -hmm. And then you don't have to worry about collecting them. And this is a complete change to the way in which we think of robots. Instead of 
hundreds and thousands of millions in the world, or even billions of robots in the world, we would have numbers which are really difficult to imagine. I call them molar numbers. So they're molar numbers because they're like, you know, one mole is 10 times to six times 10 to the 23 molecules. And if you can make that number of robots, then you have really interesting behaviors that you can, you can generate. It's a kind of like a paradigm shift in the way we think of robots. And I think the only way we can achieve that kind of robot, where we've got very large numbers, they're safe for the environment, they're biodegradable, and they have these kind of organism um, mechanisms of you know, brain, a body, and a stomach, is to make them out of soft materials and to exploit soft robotics. I don't think you can do this with conventional rigid robots. You have to go the soft robots route. So that's an area where we're really excited in Bristol mm. to try to make this organic robotic, soft robotic system, which you can throw away. And that's, that's what we think that's really exciting. Yeah, that's very interesting. Actually, there's a lot of question here. And the first question I would like to ask, uh, do you think that we, we understand the physics behind the smart material. And why I'm asking this question? Because when we, you said sometimes we use traditional co control techniques and you come to the question, what is the most important parameters I have to consider? What lead to this behavior? And sometimes, I don't know if you agree with that, we neglecting some parameters just to do certain behavior and force robot to do it. And maybe that's not the right approach. And I don't know if you think that we have to really fully deep understand how this material behaves so we can improve uh, what we're looking for. I don't know how you read this kind of um, behavior of dealing with smart material in our community. How we would deal? The first, this is the first question. Yeah, the, the materials we use are indeed highly nonlinear. And then if we have a complicated structure which has got enough flexibility in it to enable it to deform, in complicated ways in three-dimensional space, then the structure comes into it and that increases the nonlinearity of the whole system. And of course, control becomes more difficult. Mm. And I might turn around and say, yeah, we could, this is the kind of conventional approach it would be, yes, we need to study what's happening to that material. We need to model it really carefully. And then we need to make a controller which is going to control that really specifically to make sure we know what's happening to that robot all the time. But then I might put on my other hat and say that I don't really care about that, provided it's doing something which is useful and is not a danger. So there is a very interesting discussion that we've been having recently is that soft robots are very difficult to control, especially when they get large because of the infinite degrees of freedom. And should we completely control everything to make it fully describable at any one time? Or should we say, actually, we could let it do its own thing, provided that it operates within a certain framework. That is, it doesn't move too fast, or it doesn't impose too high a force, or it doesn't operate in areas where it shouldn't go, for example. So I think sometimes we might want to make our controllers less constrictive and less precise so that the soft robot can exist and it can operate in the way that it wants to without being too prescriptive because it could be difficult to be prescriptive and yet it operates safely within a, within a framework and that means we would then trust the robot to do something useful without us having to check it all the time to make sure it's operating within a very very tight framework 
And that would be possible if we do things like devolve intelligence into the materials, mm. because then we can get the robot in the software within particular parts to behave in a relatively predictable way. Of course, with such complicated systems as we're talking about with multi-component soft robots, we could have some emergent instabilities in the system. So we would have to check for that. We, we might have to constrain for that. But otherwise, I'm in favor of letting robots be as loose as possible, mm. if you can, because you'll probably find that there are some behaviors you haven't noticed before, which are really ad advantageous. Of course, in some circumstances, you need to be very, very prescriptive. And one example of that is, of course, in healthcare robots that, for example, are used for surgery. If you are going to uh, do laparoscopic surgery inside someone's body with a soft robot, I think you do want to know exactly where that robot is all the time. And I don't think you can let it be free in its movement. But if the robot is going to crawl around the roof and, and clean the roof tiles, for example, I don't need to worry too much about how it's moving, provided that it's still cleaning the roof tiles. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's an interesting point. And I would like to ask you about how do you see uh, the control, traditional control approaches? Do you think that we have to move on to something completely new or come up with new approaches? For example, morphological computation maybe offer some opportunities to investigate the possibility of coming up with new uh, control techniques. However, on the other side, there is a trend that maybe traditional control techniques can fulfill our requirement for soft robotics. How do you see this debatable point between traditional control techniques and morphological computation? Well, of course, there's an element of both in this. Uh, so <clears throat> if you take biological organisms, they have explicit controllers. In their, in their brains and in their, in their nervous systems, but they also have implicit control through their body structures and the materials that their bodies are made of. So there's definitely a route to, to have both of those controllers, and I don't think you can have one exclusively without the other. Sometimes they need to coexist together, so you might have a subunit which is very precisely controlled by a conventional controller, and you may have a, a body system which is a little bit more emergent in its behavior. Or you might turn it around the other way and say that you have a, robot, a soft robot that has tentacles which have got morphological computation inside them, but the central body enables the high-level control of those tentacles. And I think that will very much depend on the application and how you want to use this robot. It's interesting when we talk about control and bodies, mm -hmm. and we talk about how bodies and controllers in nature have evolved. And of course, they haven't evolved separately, they've evolved together. And what we sometimes miss in the robotics and sometimes in the soft robotics community is that when we design a robot in the lab and we design its body, we may forget the controller. And so we put it in afterwards as a, as a controller that controls something that's already existing. But that's not what happens in nature. So wouldn't it be lovely if we could design and build our robots and have them emerge and grow, and also for their control systems to emerge and grow and increase in sophistication as the robot body increases in sophistication. So this co-design or co-evolution of the controller and the body, I think is quite important going forward, especially as the soft robots become more sophisticated. I'm sure we'll get to a point where our soft robots are, are so sophisticated and complex that actually it's going to be very difficult to define a very tight controller for them. And maybe we should have started with the controllers 
and the body being developed at the same time as we go through and, and we have a more sophisticated robot. It would very much depend on the application, which one of those one chooses. But I do like the idea of, of co-development of the body and the controller, and therefore this morphological computation, if you call it that, because that is another element of evolution or of development, which is again being, being co-designed. Yeah. So um, if I ask you to which level the developers, current of robotics, uh, are intelligent in our community, how do you see the which, which level do you expect? And do you think there's something, maybe imagine the future more intelligent than what we have already in our community? Well, there's what level of intelligence we've got to, I think we're still very elementary with this. Um, you know, we always say that that our, well, we quite often say that our robots are, are bio-inspired or they replicate the behavior of organisms which have intelligence, of course. Um, but I think we are still quite limited in that. And we're quite early days on that. Organisms uh, have got a much more complicated controllers than we have, even the simplest ones, even, even organisms that only got a hundred or so neurons have behaviors that we find it difficult to replicate without a relatively sophisticated controller. So in those circumstances, we've got a long way to go there. How high and sophisticated we need to go is another question. And, and again, it comes back to that, that question of, of how the controllers and the, uh, and the robots need to be developed. I don't think we have got very high. I don't think our sophistication of intelligence. Now, of course, organisms have extra levels of control through their higher level reasoning. And the one thing we're missing here when we talk about soft robots is, is quite often we think of control, but we don't think of computation. And that is really where we have an opportunity at the moment. So I'm always interested in how natural materials have got some sophistication in devolved behavior, but they don't actually have much computation in them. And yet we, as sophisticated organisms, have designed these things called computers. And we have a whole theory of them, for, of computation, right? You know, right back from, from Turing's time, we know how digital computers will work. And there's a lot of work being done on analog computers and so on. So we have the opportunity now to put that kind of computational skill explicitly into the robot. Now, that's a little bit different from morphological computing, which is using structures and behaviors in the materials to show a kind of physical behavior, for example. But I think we've got the opportunity now to embed computation directly into the materials. Of course, lots of work has been done embedding silicon type uh, computation, you know, small microcontrollers into soft systems connected by wires, for example. And of course, there's lots of great work to be done on that. But I think they're missing a trick here. I think the trick is that the materials can themselves undertake computation and we can put in structures which explicitly do computation with the materials. And at Bristol, we've done a lot of work in this area. And I think this is really, really exciting. It is non-silicon computation, but it's computation inside the materials. And now if you can get materials to do computation, then you can do really interesting things because if you can make a more sophisticated computer, let's call it a computer, inside the materials, you might then get the materials to learn to do something. Well, that's really exciting because at the moment, all of our materials are pretty dumb. Uh, they might behave when you push them or twist them and they might produce a response, but that's pretty static. They don't change that response over time. 
But if you have a computer in the system and it's part of the materials, then you've got that potential to tune the behavior of the system in, in real time as it goes and it becomes really much more sophisticated. So I think getting more computation into the system, I think is really exciting. I suppose that comes back to what I was saying before about the brain, the body and the stomach and mm. getting the brain into the body is, is really exciting. I think, I think that's a very interesting point. And actually, um, I, I come across this paper and it's really interesting research. And I, I would like to skew because I, I think when we look into stuff robotics currently, uh, using traditional uh, controller techniques, like in, in terms of hardware, and that's something I don't know if we have as a community to shift focus for, like, is this example of soft computers inside the material itself. I don't know if you think that we have to shift the focus on this direction because when we see soft robotics with like hardware, it's, it's it's just a combination, and it sounds at the end of the day we can't really deploy this approach, this this to soft material and hardware as well. So how do you think about that? Do you think we have to shift the focus for soft computers inside material? I don't think we need to shift focus because we still need those, you know, muscles and sensors and uh, variable stiffness materials and all that really interesting stuff that we're still doing. But we need to add in these capabilities of computing into those soft systems. And uh, we've done a lot of work at Bristol on that and our soft matter computer and uh, others like George Whiteside is yeah. doing some really interesting work on computational systems. And Adam Stokes has been looking at uh, pneumatic control systems. So I think we are starting to look at this. What I'm particularly interested in is, is not, not taking a conventional approach and putting it into the materials, like for example, embedding pneumatics. I'm not a particularly big fan of pneumatics. Um, so I think looking at the capabilities of the materials and seeing how we can get the computation explicitly into there. Mm. And I'm really talking about explicit computation rather than implicit morphological computation in here. Because I think it's, I think it's easy for us, easier for us to design an explicit computational material than it is for us to find really good examples that we can learn from in the morphological computing end of things. Because I have yet to find anybody who can tell me how to make a morphologically computing structure by designing it, if you sort of mean. We've seen many examples of it working, but they seem to be, oh, I've realized this after the, after the fact, or I have observed it in nature. But to actually start from first principles and to design something which is morphologically intelligent is difficult. But I think if we explicitly encode computation and learning into our materials, then we can do it. Because we know we can program a computer, so why can't we program our materials in the same way? Mm -hmm. yeah. And do you think also for emotion, do you think that's something we can uh, integrate in also for robotics or maybe challenging and does make any sense? Oh, no, it's challenging. Yeah, that's a really adventurous thought you've got there. Yeah. I mean, what is emotion? Emotion is a higher level behavior. So we start off with computation at the lowest level, which enables us to, for example, move or react to create uh, responses. Um, the kind of responses you get when you put your hand on something which is too hot and you pull it away, these kind of reactions. Um, and once we've got that, then we can do the more computational intense. Uh, reactive control where we we consider our response before we make it it's, it's less knee-jerk it it involves analysis of memory and experience and then once you've done the memory experience 
and then that's modified your behavior. That must be a kind of learning, right? As soon as you've got memory in the system, you've got learning. And then if you put these high-level behaviors in there, like emotions um, and the high-level re reactivity, then I think that's, that's really exciting. So one area where we've been looking a little bit at this is in the behavior of, of robots, which are degradable, they degrade to nothing. So we found that some of our robots uh, are biodegradable, which is a really exciting principle in itself. But if you have another robot, which can take that first robot and consume it inside its artificial stomach, then you've got the notion that a robot can eat another robot. Mm. Now, that leads to this high leads to this high level behavior of cannibalism yeah. and it's which is a really weird thing to have in robots but it's really exciting because yeah. it means that they can share energy one robot can give energy to another robot and then the other robot can continue its mission but it also means you've got these extra high level behaviors like altruism like one robot can decide mm. to give up its energy and effectively lose a life by giving its energy to the other robot and those are they're not emotional behaviors, but they're certainly higher level behaviors where the behavior or the good of the whole community is more important than the good of the single robot. And I think that's probably where human behaviors and, and animal behaviors come in. They're not just this, this high level structure that we've evolved for no reason. We've evolved behaviors for reasons and they're good for our society and they're good for the, the larger number of robots. <laughs> organisms, mm. in our case, robots, than just having one robot being selfish for itself. So we love our family because we care for our family and we care for our family so that we can keep it safe. And then our genes are protected and preserved so that we carry on for later generations. And those are the kind of behaviors that I think you could build into the soft robots so that they would have really interesting behaviors of communities, um, of ecologies, and then they would, for example, preserve the most effective robot for the future. And the other robots might die out. So mm. very, very interesting population behaviors come out of just these simple emotions, as we'll, we'll call them, using your analogy. That's a very, that's a very interesting uh, aspect to consider. Yeah. And I, I would like to ask you what you think that maybe the biggest technological roadblocks for soft robotics in a short term in a and, and also in a long term. Yeah, so I think in the short term, it is that energy transduction problem. And so if we design robots in the lab, it's very easy to have actuators and bodies and computational systems on, on the desktop, on the laboratory bench top, which are plugged into power supplies from the wall, you know, electricity or uh, pneumatics or chemical energy from a supply. And that's going to be quite limiting because we don't have that. And also our transduction mechanisms from the chemical store that we've got, if it's electrical into mechanical, are not as efficient as they could be. There's been some really interesting recent developments in artificial muscles using uh, electroactive polymer materials and, and um, others that we've been generating like our electro origami uh, artificial muscles, which show you know, better responses and more efficiency, but they still are not as efficient or as sustainable as biological muscle, for example. Mm. So energy and energy transfer is a real problem at the moment. So we need better materials and better structures that are going to give us the actuation from a small amount of energy. And likewise, maybe reverse that and say, if you put mechanical energy into those materials, 
they can generate electrical energy, for example, output. So we've got that, that notion that transduction is bidirectional. You can use the energy from the store to give you mechanical energy, or you can reverse it and you've got energy harvesting. So I think in the short term, that kind of transduction and artificial muscle technologies are a bit missing and, and we need to do more on that. In the long term, I think once we've solved the kind of materials, muscles, energy problem, then I think the sky's the limit on how sophisticated our soft robots can be mm. and how many we can have. And as I, as I said at the beginning, I think I would really like to see large numbers of robots, soft robots around that are smaller, that are larger, larger in number, and therefore have got really interesting behaviors. And then the challenge becomes, what kind of behaviors would these really large numbers of cell-like soft robots be able to do together as communities? So you could just imagine taking your helicopter or your drone across a city and dropping out a million or a billion soft robots that, that are spread across your city and they, they fall off the rooftops and then they fall onto the ground in the middle of the city and then they find some chewing gum that somebody's mm -hmm. left on the floor and they eat the chewing gum and then they, they kind of remove it from, from, from the floor, which is nice, they do some cleaning. And then when the rain comes, then they all wash away down the hole and then they degrade in the sea. And when they're eating the chewing gum, they all collaborate together so that they, they work together to do that and they lift it off from the ground and so on. So the potential for this kind of concept is quite high, but there are going to be some challenges turning it from the countable number of robots, which we have at the moment, to the uncountable number of robots, you know, the kind of numbers that we have difficulty imagining, but we can make. I think that's a real challenge for the future. And that's eye-opening and very interesting. Yeah. And I think the next question, I'm, I'm really curious to ask you about uh, the challenges of speaking different language. For example, we know it, the field of my field, but I don't know how, to which level we have to understand, for example, the material level, or maybe someone from material aspect to understand the control aspect. So do you think, firstly, there's a challenge here? And if there's a challenge, how we can overcome these challenges of speaking different languages in our field? Yeah, there is a challenge. And I don't think we'll ever get over that particular challenge, nor do I think we have to. Mm. So when somebody asks me what I do, I have to say, I put my hand up and say, I'm an engineer. You know, that's, that's what I am. I can do things in the engineering sphere pretty well. Um, my background is electrical engineering, but I know a lot about mechanical engineering and other types of engineering. Now, I'm not a chemist, but we do a lot of work with colleagues in chemistry. Mm -hmm. But we have to have a common language between us. And so I obviously go back to my school chemistry to help me with my communication. And that's why, you know, good basic education at schools is really important. And that has been enough, plus some self-study. And the same is true when I um, make a device, for example, that's going to be implanted in the human body. I'm not a biologist, but I know a little bit about biology and then I learn some more so I can cross that gap with my clinical colleagues to enable this soft robot to be implantable and to be safe in that. So I think the skill for a roboticist and for a soft roboticist as well, is that we have to have our core skills, which could be mathematical or it could be uh, physics or science-based. It doesn't really matter what background we come from or engineering, 
or zoology. I mean, it could be from a different background, but we have to have just enough of the knowledge or the language of the other domain to enable us to communicate. And of course, communication is one thing, but we also have to have the imagination to understand how the other person is thinking. So if you've got imagination and some of this common language that you were talking about, and you, you can imagine what it's like for other people to think about your subject, then I think you can enable the communication pretty well. So the interesting thing about robotics I've always found is that robotics is at the intersection of lots of other disciplines. So there is a discipline of computer science and there is a discipline of mathematics and there is a discipline of mechanical engineering and, and so on. But robotics sits at the intersection of them and it itself isn't really a discipline, I think. So in the future, we might call it a discipline or it might really fade into into obscurity because robots just become part of our daily lives but because it isn't really discipline in itself we really have to exist at the intersection of the others so the roboticist does have to have some knowledge of the other areas to operate in that intersection i think at least that's what i found So for, for the artificial intelligence and software robotics, how do you see the opportunities that artificial intelligence can come up with for software robotics research? For example, uh, I think maybe generative design, how we come up with um, the optimum design for software robotics. But I'm curious because you have a lot of research in that. So how do you see the opportunities can meet here? I'm yeah. really excited and ha about how AI, machine learning, deep learning can be used for all sorts of aspects of soft robotics. And part of that comes down to the, the difficulty in controlling, sorry, specifying mm. where our robot is going to be at any one time. So we'll take a numerical approach, an observational approach, and then we'll feed that measurement data into um, a, a, a learned control system, for example, um, a deep learning control system. And that would enable us to get pretty good control in pretty good environments uh, for a pretty low cost. And that's that's really exciting, is it, it means you can use that effectively. The trouble is with many of these AI systems is that they are black box in nature. Yeah. And uh, I remember back when I was doing my PhD, uh, my work was in AI and machine learning, but for much more transparent systems, you know, knowledge-based systems, systems that were using uh, fuzzy set theory to describe some uh, quite complex relationships, but in a way in which you could open the box and you could see how the system was doing its reasoning. And we've lost that a little bit with some of the, the deep learning and machine learning boxes. And it's, it'd be nice to have that back again, at least to a degree, so that when the robot is doing something and it's done something, then you can go back and say, well, hold on, why did it make that decision? That's, that's always a nice thing to have. Now, of course, we may not be able to achieve that practically. So we may use our machine learning to do the lower level control of our limbs or our body or whatever. And then we use that high level reasoning, which is a little bit more transparent. And then we can we can use that high level reasoning, for example, in a central brain, as we were talking about before. And we can then query the brain and say, OK, I don't know exactly how you moved your tentacle, but please tell me why you moved your tentacle. To do that mm. and then that becomes more interesting uh, from a, a a different type of ai point of view so i think ai is incredibly useful and machine learning is incredibly useful for 
designing robots, as you say, for coming up with pretty good designs and pretty good controllers. Uh, but also it's useful for the high level behavior as well. And that will be really exciting. So you talked earlier about emotions and I would agree with you there. And I consider it to be high level behaviors and merging those high level behaviors with the low level control of, of soft bodies is actually really exciting. Now, AI is here to stay, of course, and these machine learning tools are going to get bigger and better. And we use them. We sometimes use them as black boxes to just get us an answer, to get us a controller that we can use. And sometimes we use them as tools to learn about the system so that we can then change the system. And I think that's really exciting, the way in which you can use them as refinement tools. That's interesting. And I'm, I would like to ask you about the black box model. Because I think here there's like a trade-off between the models we develop for soft robotics and the data we have. And I don't know how do you see this trade-off between the models we develop and data required for, um, for example, black box modeling. And do you think that would be sufficient, for example, for maybe repeatable and reproducible soft robotics? Yeah, well, sometimes we have to have compromises because you're right that if you were to perfectly describe a soft robot, you need a lot of data to describe it accurately. But we found that if you take that data and you reduce it down using convolutional networks, for mm -hmm. example, you can generate a descriptor of the soft robot, which means that we can reason with it and then we can reproduce it by projecting back into the higher order space. Now that's pretty exciting. And you, you, you then find that maybe we don't need many descriptors for our soft robot. And one way in which we can think about that is if you, were to, uh, if you had a soft robot in front of you, a picture of one, and then you asked somebody to draw it, they could draw it, right, um, on another piece of paper. And then you could probably take away that first picture, the first photograph of the robot, and then ask them to draw it again from memory. And they would probably be able to draw it again from memory, and it would look pretty good, right? It would probably have the right number of tentacles. It would probably have the right kind of shape to it. And even if it was slightly different, it would probably be in a shape or a configuration that that original robot would probably be able to move into, if you see what I mean. Mm -hmm. So what that means is that the, the human has been able to describe the robot or have an internal representation of the robot, which has been is pretty compact because it's just he's just looking he or she is just looking at the shapes and the curves and, the, and so on. And yet they've been able to reproduce it you know, pretty well just from memory. And I think that's the kind of way in which we can potentially control and represent robots with these kind of high level but fewer descriptors of the robot shape. And then, of course, you build the controller around that. And we might call it a just good enough controller or a just good enough descriptor. And we found by doing that, you can reproduce robotic, but also natural organism uh, shapes and behaviors with a very, very few descriptors. So that's really nice because it, it hints that you don't need to control everything. Mm. You can let the robot do most of the stuff itself as long as you give it that, that high level framework and high level representation to play with. And I think that's exciting. So I'm not too worried about the data to model control. I am worried a little bit about black boxes, right? Mm. If we rely too much on black boxes, then we're putting a lot of faith into things that we may not understand, although in this case we exactly. do. Yeah. But I do like this notion of these kind of reduced descriptors of the robot and how actually those become practical tools to describe the robot. I like that a lot. Yeah, I agree with that. So I would like to ask you how we can ensure that developers of robotics 
will be beneficial to humanity as a whole. And maybe in other terms, when we got funding for a certain project and for four years, how we make sure this will be revolved in something meaningful to, in the end of the day, to the community? Wait upon something really interesting there that I'm, I'm passionate about, and that is the short-sightedness of some of our research funders. Mm. So we quite often are used to, as academics, as researchers, and even young researchers have got to fit into this mold, which I find is, a, is, a, is a not really very fair, where you have this great idea for something which could impact the human race within 20 or 30 years. And that's kind of what soft robots is, right? I mean, it could have a huge impact in the next 10 or 20, 30 years. Mm -hmm but you need to get a grant now and that's got to deliver something within three or four years. So that means you immediately constrain your imagination down to something that isn't as exciting and potentially isn't as impactful because you've had to produce a short-term impact rather than a long-term impact. So recently I was very uh, pleased to see that the UK had put in a call for some projects which have got a delivery or a target of 2050 that's 30 years away and so specifically these projects are just five years and aimed to produce deliverables in 30 years time and that's great because it means you can have that really exciting view of how your career as a young researcher could expand and what you might do in 30 years and you could start the process now and that means that you can really pick something in 30 years time which has got a massive benefit to human life so for example it could it could be making everybody in wheelchairs able to walk around you know something crazy but really beneficial and the only way you can do that is by putting together a kind of long-term research strand so coming back to your question as to how we can make soft robots beneficial we do need to always have that long-term vision because we're still at the early days for soft robotics. And to be able to think, okay, what could you use soft robots for? Right, you could use it for space exploration or environmental remediation or uh, helping people to walk or all sorts of really interesting things. And have those constantly as our long-term goal and make sure that our short-term projects are moving towards that and that they're not as restrictive as conventional short-term projects are. Mm -hmm. And a lot of that is down to persuading the funders that this is how you want to do it but also because the community of soft roboticists are the people that review these grants you know they're the ones that write the reviews and say this is a really good idea they also should have that long-term view about what is achievable and what this project should therefore do and what it should deliver and i think that would mean that new researchers in this area can really have that that long-term view and really generate you know, stuff that is going to be throughout their careers. You know, they can make their careers on making soft robots a real reality. And I, and I think that's a very powerful and brilliant point about what you mentioned earlier. So, yeah, I think I think that something comes down that you have to have objective for, for the research and that's really restrain your capabilities or maybe taking another level. So, yeah, I think it is a strong movement, uh, what you mentioned earlier about funding, and I agree with that. Um, the next question about when we have the research in our lab, how we can make this transfer from the lab to industry. If you if a student, maybe you have a startup in soft robotics, what do you think the most important question you have to ask yourself to make sure this transition would be would be okay that you can transfer ideas? 
how we can make sure this transition, if you, if you can answer this question. We found from our experience that the one way in which laboratory research can turn quickly into impact in industry or in academia or sorry, industry or, or in the economy, for example, is to have passion in the researchers who develop it, because it's typically the researchers who developed the ideas and came up with the, the knowledge behind it. And if they can take it forward, then they are by far the best people to take it through. So, for example, you might have a cool bit of research in the lab and it's got great potential. And the best thing to do is to launch a spin-out company. And the people to run the spin-out company are the people who came up with the ideas originally. And that would mean that there's some kind of continuity between the core research and how it's going to be used. Of course, lots of researchers are weighing up their future and how they want their careers to develop. Some of them do want to go into business and entrepreneurship and startup companies, and others see academic life or research in a, in a company as a really exciting area to work. And I, I think everybody should do what they want to do. So sometimes that cool bit of technology hasn't transferred into something that could be used or gone out into a company because those researchers haven't been able to do it. Now, the other thing, of course, is that lots of our technologies are caught up in patents. Quite often, we're encouraged to patent our technologies. And that means that we get a lovely piece of paper that says your technology is protected and now you can go and sell it. But if the university or the research institute doesn't have the resources to push forward that patent and to develop it, well, you don't have a ready partner who's, who's there to pick it up. Quite often, those patents will just sit there. And there is a potential, therefore, that the, the market development of that technology is constrained because others can't use it. Mm. So I, I, I'm in two minds about this as to whether research should be patented and therefore that's a way to get it out to the world because only a company can develop it, or whether academic research should be completely free and open and non-patent protected so that anyone can use it. The trouble is, if anybody can use this, that might mean that nobody uses it because there isn't a market niche for them to exploit. And it's a perennial problem of how you get scientific research out into the world. In terms of encouraging the next generation of researchers, I think they've got, they've got both opportunities. They can work in research and develop really cool ideas and take that forward, or they can take their cool ideas and turn them into a business opportunity. And maybe we need more support for those people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree with you. So we're, we're closing to the end and we have a few questions. Do you think ego is important for the researcher? <laughs> I think you should ask my, my PhD students and my researchers whether they think ego is important or not, because they might have a different view to me. Mm. I don't think ego is particularly important. I think actually that's a very bad thing. Mm. I think imagination and confidence is important. I think perhaps beyond that is perseverance. We've all done laboratory experiments which haven't worked. And we shouldn't give up and we go back and do it again and finally it works and the same is true for all types of research it's not just the experiments but it's the whole project that may not work in the end and it's okay you, you put it on the shelf and you get on with the next project and then i'm a great believer that if you persevere and you are enthusiastic and imaginative you will succeed mm. and if you if you succeed then of course you'll just carry on 
But the one thing that I always, the only bit of advice that I give is, is obviously not to have ego, but people should try to do the thing that they really want to do. So if they have a dream, then they should do it. And if they have a great idea, then they should push for it. Even if it means that they maybe have to take a step backwards to start with, even if they have to kind of wait for a bit, maybe they have to suppress their ego just a little bit. So I don't think ego is important, but determination and drive are quite important. And if I ask you, what do you think the most important qualities for the researcher? Because we know sometimes uh, the journey is maybe is is not easy sometimes, and maybe there are setbacks. So what do you think the most important qualities? Uh, is it challenging sometimes for the researcher? Ah, uh, that's difficult. There's not one quality, but there are many qualities that make, and you have a blend of them. And there's, there's, there's no correct answer to this one. I think having imagination is really powerful because it means that you can overcome some of your other limitations. For example, if you've got great imagination, you don't need to be quite so technically skilled, right? Because you've got that great idea and therefore people will be really interested in the idea and it puts forward the research. If you don't have that imagination, but you are really conscientious and skilled, then you can generate real, imp real impact from your technical abilities. And so I think those are two crucial parts. Enthusiasm is also incredibly important, no matter what, because if you've got enthusiasm, you can probably overcome those other two if you want. So there are many researchers who are enthusiastic, aren't so technically skilled um, and aren't so imaginative, but they are just enthusiastic. Mm -hmm. So I suppose if you've got those three, you've got it made. You probably become prime minister or president. And which book inspired you and you would recommend? Ooh. Um, one book that I really liked, and I think I would recommend, is a, a, a biography of Richard Feynman. Mm -hmm. Richard Feynman, the, the American physicist. Now, lots of people have, have quoted his work and his lectures, but I would say, sure, they're really, really, they're really good. Of course they're good. You know, he's, he's inspirational. But I read this biography. I forget who it was by, but it's easy enough to find. And you learn about Richard Feynman's life. And he was much more of a balanced person than you might think most academics are. You know, he used to play the bongos. He went down to uh, Brazil and he enjoyed himself down there. And, you know, he had a life that was well beyond academia. So he was an enthusiastic and rounded person. And that's quite inspirational. What it means is that you can be that crazy bongo player and still be a scientist. You don't have to be that prototypical scientist engineer. You can just be you. And if you are just you, then you end up being the best scientist possible because you are yourself. So I think that that would be a recommendation if you're going to read a book, a bio, biography of Richard Feynman. That's great. And lastly, what was the best advice was given to you as a person professionally and was like life changing for you? Uh, well, so I, I'm not in, I, I, don't, I, I don't have a problem if people don't have a conventional career. Mm. And I think it's, if life throws at you some problems, like, I don't know, you didn't get into university, for example, when you're 18 or 19, right? Mm. Or you didn't get into the university that you wanted and you feel like you, sh you should try again, then I would say, try again. And that's the advice that I got through life. If it didn't work the first time, but you want something because it's your dream, then don't accept second best and go for your dream. It takes longer, but so what? When you are 70, 80, 90, and you look back on your life, you won't even remember the year you spent doing something that you, you know, may not have liked, but it enabled you to get back into the thing that you did like. So I guess 
perseverance in in the in the face of failure is one thing that I found really exciting and I, I still do it mm. and and I would recommend everybody to do that if there's a setback not to accept the setback and say oh yeah I will take second best but to say yeah you know what I will go back to that one that I really had a dream for and go for your dream. That's powerful and deep. And I think that comes in, you have, you can have as many shots as, as you want. That's really powerful. Yeah. Thank you. I really enjoyed this eye opening talk and yeah, thanks so much for your time. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you, Mara. That was really enjoyable. Thank you. Thank